Genesis 44. Starting in verse 1, we have the lengthy text this morning, all of 44. Uh, Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his servants, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does the Lord... My Lord, speak such words as these. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then shall we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with this shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found us, found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then he said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you should not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother 
goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One is left. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to just to look and talk about and think about your word uh, in these moments that we have ahead. Uh, Lord, we realize that uh, we have no right to ask anything of you. Uh, you can leave us to ourselves. But because of your great character, because you care about people, uh, because you care about your name and the name of your son, I ask that you have mercy upon me and upon this congregation and that your spirit will work in our hearts. Help me with the task that has been entrusted to me to deliver a message based on this text. And Lord, minister to your people that they might hear what you want them to hear that applies to where they are in life so that they might know how you want them to live and what changes they need to make. Make it clear to them. Uh, and Lord, I pray that they would live differently this week in light of what they learn. We pray these things for your glory, for your honor, for your namesake, and for the name of your son the Christ whom you raised from the dead. It is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So if you attended service here last weekend, uh, you know that one of the special things that we had in our service was a, a baptism uh, each service. Uh, on Saturday night we had two, and then uh, at each service on Sunday morning we had one baptism. And for us as a church, of course, that is a, a joyous time. Uh, at least for me, it's joyous because it's, it's just a, a good reminder that God is at work in the world around us as he is working in people's lives. Uh, and reflecting upon that this week, after we came out of the baptism and we were in the office one day this week, and uh, Pat, who's our church administrator and also one of the elders on the elder board, were uh, just kind of uh, re re reliving uh, and thinking about what we had done in the last 10 years of, of serving here at Living Water uh, as, as leaders in the church and just the different people that we have baptized over the years. Um, and and, and th those were some, some joyous moments to be able to baptize uh, those people. Uh, and as we thought about that, uh, we couldn't help but remember what happened to some of the people uh, months later after we had baptized them. And not every story was, was a good story. Uh, there were those who, uh, after being baptized, went on to become faithful servants of Christ. Uh, and then there were others who, uh, after being baptized, uh, they went on to 
by their lives denounced the pledge that they had made at their baptism to God to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be his disciple. And as, as we all know from studying the biblical text that to be a disciple is not simply this idea of embracing one's teaching. No, the disciple has something more holistic in mind. The disciple's goal was to not only embrace the teaching of their rabbi, but to embrace their, their lifestyle, their, their way of thinking and seeing the world. It, it was to, to, to emulate the, the life in totality of the one that they were saying that they wanted to be disciple. And that, that's the same kind of goal that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. And as we were thinking about some of those people who had chosen to go uh, down a, a, another path, uh, it, it burdens us as elders because we realize the scripture lays upon us a responsibility to watch for the souls that are entrusted to our care because we as elders know that the scriptures are clear that one day Jesus is going to return and for every person who stands in leadership over his body to them, God will make us give an account for how we have cared for his sheep in his absence. And so naturally that causes us to seek answers. And we often start by asking a question. You know, what criteria might we use to know if a person's heart has really been changed. Now, by heart here, I'm not using the, the modern usage of it where often when we say heart, we're just uh, appealing to one aspect of our being, which is generally our feelings. Uh, let your heart guide you. It really means let your feelings lead you, which is not really a good piece of advice. Here, I'm thinking more of a biblical concept that has to do with the, the, the totality of your inner life, uh, your, your, your thoughts, your, your will, your, 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 your um, values, all that makes up your inner world, uh, the seat and core of your being. That, that's what I'm referring to when I'm using the word heart. Now, in your life, perhaps you've been in a similar situation, but, but perhaps for different circumstances. Uh, you've been in a relationship or relationships, and you're trying to decide whether or not the person that you're uh, connected to really has experienced change in their lives. And you're trying to sort out whether or not what criteria should you use to determine if they've really changed? Well, I believe today's text provides us with the answer to that specific question. Now, the change that I'm looking for here uh, is in light of change toward Christ-likeness, a uh, conformity to the image of Christ because that's God's goal, as he tells us in Romans chapter 8, because we all know that there's change in the other direction as well. People can change in unhealthy ways in negative ways. But, but that's not the change that I'm looking for today. It's positive change, the kind that God is looking for. So to, to, to kind of just review, uh, for our answer, we return to this account, uh, what's going on in between Joseph and his brothers. Now let me just a little bit, just remind you about what happened last week. So last week, his brothers have returned from Canaan to Egypt for their second visit. And the reason they've come back is because although their, prison has been, their brother has been in prison just waiting for them to come back, they didn't come back quickly. They waited until they uh, ran out of food. Uh, as a brother, I would be a little bit questionable about that. You know, like, it wasn't until your belly was empty that you got back to get me. You just let me sit here. But nevertheless, that was a conversation for later. Uh, and so anyway, as they're, they're there and they finally come back because they're pressed to because they don't have food, uh, they return, and we find out, thankfully, through some events that have transpired, uh, Benjamin is with them. The youngest brother is on this trip with them, the one he had, who had not been with them before. Uh, and, and they arrive in Egypt to see uh, the prime minister, who we know as Joseph of Egypt at the time, and they receive a warm welcome that ends in this wonderful 
a meal where there's uh, abundant resources provided for them. And, and Benjamin, of course, receives five times as much as anyone else. Well, this week, we're picking up in the morning after the meal. And that's when these events are transpiring. We're, we're in the very next day, and the events seem surprising. We start off uh, in Joseph's house. We, we don't know what time it is, but obviously it's very early in the morning because at first light, uh, he sends them off, and we find something unexpected. Joseph plans to frame his brothers for a crime they didn't commit. And that's how our text starts off. And so in the morning, as the, the first golden rays of sunlight are, are peeking over the horizon, the brothers ride off into the sunlight, headed home. Most likely, they are filled with joy. They probably have smiles on their faces. Uh, today is a good day for them, at least as they're leaving. They're leaving because their sacks are full of grain. There's abundance of food. A Simeon, their brother who was in prison, has now been freed and on his way home with them. And nothing has happened to Benjamin. He's on his way back home. Everything seems right with the world as they make their way off into the distance. But just as they get past the city, the city limit, suddenly they notice that there are lights in the rearview mirror. Most likely for them it wasn't lights, it was the sound of hoofbeats beating against the ground that came rapidly behind them as they heard the sound of someone pursuing them, only to find out that the prime minister's chief servant uh, most likely with an entourage, is tracking them down until he catches up with them. When he catches them, of course, he accuses them of ungratefulness and theft. They firmly deny the charges, and they reason from the position of, of why, would we be, why would we steal something when, when we came back, we, we tried to resolve the payment matter the first time. Uh, we, we showed up with money, we left, and there was money in our sacks, and, and we brought that money back plus more money for the new stuff. Why, why would we turn around and, and then steal from you when we tried to correct the previous problem with the payment? That, that, that's not how a thief would act. And then after that, they willingly submit to a, a search uh, as quickly as possible because they believe their innocence. But can you imagine the looks on their faces, um, the utter terror as the servant reached his hand into the youngest brother's sack and out as his hand pulls as the grains just fall off comes a silver cup that perhaps they had seen the night before that the prime minister had used at dinner. In utter grief, we see their emotional reaction in the text. They tore their clothes. They're in shock. They're grieving. But they want to resolve the matter, so they re quickly return to the city. Now, this is important because only in the past, when at the time of Joseph happened, the only people that we actually saw tear their clothes were Reuben and Jacob out of great grief. But now all of the brothers are tearing their clothes and grief. So when they get back to this Egyptian prime minister who they do not know as Joseph, they fall on the ground before him uh, in order to, to plead for his mercy. And, and Judah, who becomes their spokesperson, offers no defense for the situation that they're in. He, he, he offers them to become the servants of Joseph, that is, to become slaves, as he had done with the servant uh, when he first addressed them. Now, what's interesting is, is how Judah thinks about the situation. He, he, he talks about the fact that he believes that this has happened because 
of divine justice. He, he's not claiming that they stole the cup, but he believes that the events that are transpiring in their lives are because of their guilt from past situations. One writer put it this way, this is God's way, says Judah, of visiting their past misdeeds upon them. They withheld mercy from Joseph. Now God will withhold mercy from them. They deserve what is happening to them, even if they're not guilty of this particular crime. Here is a graphic illustration of the Bible's emphasis on God's justice. The, wrong, the wrongs one does will be repaid some way, somehow, somewhere. As I was thinking about that, it, it, it brought back to my mind when I was growing up. When I was growing up, there were times in my life when I would receive a spanking. Uh, in the Texas vernacular, we would call it a whooping. And when I, at times when I had received one of these whoopings that I felt was unjust and undeserved, I would lodge a complaint to the administration, <laughs> my mother. And I would complain to my mother and I would say, Mama, that was not fair that Daddy just whooped me. I didn't deserve that. I, I didn't do what you claimed I did. And I have now been punished and received pain in my body as a result of something I did not do. And my mama had a, a standard response. It could have been an email that she could have sent out back in those days. But her response was simply like this. And she would say to me, son, just think of it this way. There are all those times we didn't catch you for things you did do wrong. Just consider this as payment for those times. See, my mother believed in divine justice. That was her idea that God would work it out some kind of way so that we ended up getting what we, we needed to, to, to get because she believed no one was going to escape God's justice. Now, in response to Judah, the prime minister, Joseph, like his servant, alters the deal uh, he doesn't say, I'm going to put all of you in slavery, although he says that would be right in this situation to do. But I'll, I'm only going to take the one who's guilty. And in this case, that's Benjamin. I'm going to only subject him to slavery and put him in slavery. The rest of you can go free and go home. Take your food. You're free. Go back to your dad. Enjoy the rest of your life. And so now the brothers are faced with the choice that they were faced with before some 22 years ago with Joseph. Will they stand with their brother or will they choose themselves? Because they're again dealing with dad's favorite son. And what Judah does here, which seems just like a rehearsing of events, really is a masterful speech in which he intercedes for Benjamin's future. First, he begins by recalling the previous encounter with this prime minister, but he carefully omits anything that would be offensive about their previous encounter. Uh, and so that the, the, the official won't be frustrated in any way. And then he recalled the events that happened when he went back home. But, but, but he emphasizes something about that interaction with his dad, which is the special love that his dad has for this specific son. Because what he wanted to do is emphasize the impact that taking this son would have upon his father. And then finally, he offered his life to be put into life, a, a lifetime of servitude and slavery in the place of Benjamin. See, in this text, we see that Judah and his brothers have now come to a point in their lives where at least as Judah voices, there is greater concern for the welfare of their father than for their own comfort. 
Now, this is not the same Judah that we saw 22 years before. He was a very different man. Let me take you back. Genesis chapter 37, verse 25 through 27. There we found these words. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. What a difference we see here between the Judah 22 years before and the Judah now. The younger Judah was concerned about profiting from his brother's demise because of his jealousy and because of his anger, because of the favoritism his father had shown. And now yet this Judah understands the importance of relationships. And it's this change between how he acted 22 years before and how we find him responding in this very text that gives us the answer to the question I posed at the beginning. The question again, I remind you, what criteria might we use to know if a person's heart has really been changed? And here's the answer. You know heart change by life change. You know heart change by life change. And this begins for us by understanding that there is a correlation between our inner lives and the outward speech and actions that others are able to observe. See, the reality is that the Bible holds a view that God has made us when he created us as human beings to be whole and unified beings. We're not fragmented beings. And we see this understanding in the Lord's ministry. This is the, the, the idea or the understanding that he operated with, and this is the perspective that he taught from when he taught his disciples and the crowds and others about different things. For example, there was this time when Jesus was teaching about false teachers at the end of his sermon on the mount, and that's exactly what he does. He links up the inner life and what we see outwardly we're able to observe. Let me read the text for you and remind you of that. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, he says, and this is true even if they come in deceptive garb. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus links up the inner life, the, the, the true person that they are, with ultimately their outward behavior. Even though they might try to deceive you at first, ultimately the fruit of their life will reveal who they really are on the inside. We see the same thing when Jesus talks about people's speech. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, in 19, he said this, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, the inner world. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Because the writers of the Bible are, ex are operating from this perspective, then there, there is this expectation found in Scripture that once a person's heart has been changed, then it should result in a life change as well. Let me offer to you a couple examples to prove my point to you from the text. So you remember John the Baptist when he came preaching, right? He came preaching repentance. But not only did he preach repentance, but he tied to that the life that should go along with when one has 
repented. Let me show you that in the text. Luke chapter 3, verses 17 through 7 through 14. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Oh, that's a greeting card for you. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. See, John had this expectation that if a person truly had repented, that ought to reflect in the decisions and the way they responded to others and life around them. And just to think, just in case you think, hey, this was pre-resurrection, Paul operated with this same mentality in his ministry when he ministered. Let me show you that to you uh, in Acts. We read this verse before, but I'll read it to you again just to remind you. Uh, and while he uh, has been in prison and he's now addressing the king, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declare first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. Paul preached that there ought to be a life that coincides with the repentance that has supposedly happened inwardly. That was the expectation in the Old Testament, and the New Testament. That's the very expectation that Jesus has. That's what God expects. Now, what is it? What kind of change? As I mentioned earlier, I said it, but let me show you where I get that from in the text of the kind of change that God is looking for as his apostle wrote it down. So you'll know what the goal is. Listen to what John says in his letter to the churches. First John chapter two, verses four through six. Whoever says, I know him, that is, I know God, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked here, walk mean live. That if I say that I have a relationship with God, if I say that I abide in Christ, then it ought to manifest in the way I live my life by living according to the same pattern that we saw in Jesus's earthly life when he was here ministering and obeying, obeying his father. There's a correlation between the inner life and the outer life. That's the expectation of scripture. So what can we take away from this passage? Well, I, ha I have three takeaways for us today. And so I'll offer these to you. The first takeaway is that it has to do with personal change. So I was in the office this week with Pastor Mike, and I told him what the topic was about. And he asked three questions. And I said, you know, I, I like those questions. Let me just ask those to the congregation. And these are the questions that Pastor Mike asked. He said, are you different? Has your faith in Christ 
changed you? Really, have you seen change transpire in your life since you have placed your faith in Jesus? See, if you're a Christian who has truly experienced that gracious work of God in your heart, that the Spirit has applied the work of Christ that has caused you to trust in the Son and give your allegiance to Him because you have heard the truth about what God has done through the good news about Jesus, then life change is possible, but it's also expected. That's exactly what we find in Scripture. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians in his letter to them, chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says something radical has happened in your life if you've experienced the work of God by hearing the gospel and responding to that truth about Christ by putting your trust in him and giving your allegiance to him, then something radical has happened to you. A miracle has happened. You've been made into new humanity. Uh, you're a new person than the one you used to be. The old has gone away and you've become new. And in light of that, because you become new, then you can live in new ways that you formerly did not live. And it's because of that reasoning that Paul addresses both the Colossian church and the Ephesian church about this expected change in their lives. Uh, and to the Colossian church, he says this, and this is just in a context where he's talking about change, but I'll give you a snippet of it. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, the person you used to be, with its practices, that you used to live a certain way based on your old way of living because of how you used to be. But notice what he says. But you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. Paul says because you have taken off the old self when you came to faith in Christ and those practices, that no longer characterizes who you are. Now you've got a new self in Christ, which means there's a new way of living that should characterize who you are. He said something similar to the church and the believers at Ephesus. He said, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. See, Paul expects that because believers have received a, a transforming work of the spirit in them, that, that there ought to be an outward reflection of that in the decisions and the values and the way we live our lives in the public world around us that is observable to others. And so the question is, are you becoming more like Christ as time passes. Here's the second takeaway from the text. Don't wait on others to change before you change. Don't wait on others to change before you change. See, although 22 years have passed in the text, a lot of life has been lived, there's one person in the text who has not experienced any change. You know who it is? Jacob, the father. One commentator by the name of Gordon Winham said this about Jacob. He is very much yesterday's man. He is still living in the past, now lavishing all his love on Benjamin as he formerly did on Joseph and is still mistrustful of his other sons. Jacob was still in that old pattern of behavior, still favoring one son above all the other son, even though time has passed these 22 years. But you know who's different? The brothers are. They've changed. They're no longer operating, or operating like they did when they sold Joseph into slavery. The favoritism hasn't changed. The way dad is acting hasn't changed, but they've changed. And they're now responding differently than they did before when they were younger. Instead now, 
despite the fact that dad is still playing favorites, they're not moved with jealousy and anger. Now they're moved with compassion and care about what's happening to their father despite his unhealthy behavior in the context of their family. And I thought about that. What is it that brings about that kind of change in life? Just sometimes what happens in life. I was thinking about my own life, and I remember uh, in my own life, just when I was younger and I first became a, a young adult, got into my 20s, when I got a little bit older and I was, had a little bit more freedom from my parents and I was starting to, to live on my own, often in conversations, I would be very critical of my parents and their child-rearing abilities. Oh, I would have a critique for everything. They shouldn't have done this, and they shouldn't have done that. They could have done this better, but they didn't do that right. See, when I get kids, I'm going to do that better than them. I'm, a, I'm not going to be that way. But you know what? I had kids, and then I found out the truth, that parenting is hard, and that you have limitations, and that they don't give you a little manual with that baby that comes out to tell you how to get everything right. No, there, there are things that you have to get in wisdom, and sometimes you don't figure it out until it's already, the event has already passed, and you're like, I should have did that, but it's already gone now, and you're trying to work it out. You know what I realized? Now, and because of that, being in that situation myself, I now have much more grace and thankfulness for what my parents were able to accomplish when I realized the limitations that they were working with. And you know what's going to happen? When I get older, my kids going to critique me too. They're going to talk about how I failed in all the ways with their friends when they get to be grown. And then they'll have to learn, just like I learned, that it's not as easy as it looks. And that's what I believe has happened here. They've had an experience of life. Think about Judah. Judah has lived his life. He's had, he's had a chance to grow up and be in relationships. He's had a chance to be married and have children and experience the death of two sons. And that has changed the way that he thinks about his dad, despite the fact that his dad hasn't changed. And so often because we as pastors like Pat and I and Pastor Mike and we engage people in different conversations, this is too all too frequent what happens in marriages. One spouse says to the other, I I'm not willing to change until they make a change. Because I don't want to get caught like I get the short end of the stick. I I'm going to wait on them. When they change, that's when I'm going to change. And the person on the other side, you know what they're saying? I'm not going to change until they change. When they change, that's when I'll change. And, and that's the kind of thing you got going on in marriages. Each spouse refusing to change until the other changes. And I'm not sure who you're waiting on to change. Maybe it's not a spouse. Maybe it's a parent or a child or a friend before you uh, respond to them differently. And my advice to you, stop waiting on them to change. They may never change. But there's no excuse for you if you are a Christian to not change. The text says that you have the Spirit of God living inside of you that allows you because he has made you new after the image of the, your creator that you can change even if they don't. I was sitting at dinner with my son on Friday night and we were talking about something and I was reprimanding him about some of his behavior. You know, the first thing my son said, but, but Bella, but Bella. I said, son, we're not in the garden. You don't need to blame your sister about what she's done. God is not going to be asking you about what Bella's done. God is going to hold you accountable for what you've done. And that's the reality for everyone in this room, me included. God, God is not going to hold us accountable for what mom, dad, or child didn't do, or parent didn't do, or spouse didn't do. What he's going to hold you accountable for is what did you do? That's what, that is what is being asked of you. Not what others have done, but what are you going to do? Don't wait on them to change. You change. That's the responsibility in the text. That brings me to my third and final takeaway from this text. What we see in the text is that we see there is an expectation to show love to other Christians. That, that's what Judah displays for us when he intercedes for Benjamin's life. He shows us what it means to sacrificially love one's brother. And that's what we are. 
brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been united not by blood, but by the very spirit of God. And so now we are a family. And so the text tells us that we ought to love one another in that way. John writes this in that same letter, chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. He said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, Jesus did, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Brothers and sisters, Love your brothers and sisters in Christ as the Lord has loved you. Now let me close with an example of this real life change uh, when a heart has been changed. I, I offer to you the example of Kirk Cameron. I, I pulled two of his interviews, and, and I wanted to read to you some of the things he said as he talked about his life. And I thought he was a good example to utilize to see the point that I'm getting at uh, and when it comes out and it works out in a real life situation. So Kirk Cameron, in one of the interviews, he was being uh, interviewed, he uh, kind of just rehearsed, uh, first of all, just his, his growing up years. And this is what he said. He said, I grew up in a home where, I, where we didn't go to church. Uh, I didn't believe in God. I was a staunch atheist for most of my life. I thought that I was just too smart to believe in a fairy tale like that. When I was about 14 years old, I had been working in the entertainment industry for a few years, and I got a part of, of Mike Seaver, some of you are familiar with that, on Growing Pains. Uh, within a few years, it was a hit show. I had everything that I wanted. I had as much money as I wanted to spend. I was traveling around the world meeting famous people. I was a famous person, and I had everything that I wanted. He went on to win uh, two Golden Globes and a numerous other uh, awards during that seven-year run while the show was a, a hit, and he became the quintessential child actor. And, and that eventually, of course, like any of us, if you allow the type of lifestyle to, to happen to us, we, it generally goes to our heads, and that's what happened with him, and that's what he admitted. He said, he said, I was driving around in bulletproof limousines because stalkers were coming after me. I was flying around in Learjets because dignitaries wanted me to play tennis with their daughter. So it was a strange life, but it was a normal life to me. I was living large, hanging out with beautiful people and making lots of money. And I didn't want entertain, to entertain the thought of, of a god or get involved in religion. For all I knew, that would put a wet blanket on all the fun that I was having. But his life didn't stay in that direction. Some years later, something happened, and he talked about that. He said when he was about 17 years old that he followed a girl in the church. Some of us have done that. Uh, not because I wanted to learn about God, but because I wanted to be with that girl that I actually ended up hearing the gospel for the first time. I was sitting in my sports car on the side of Van Nuys Boulevard, dropping off my friend at an art acting class, and thinking about the fact that I could die at any moment. If I were to find out that there is a God and a heaven, I knew that I wouldn't be going. I decided that I needed to be saved, and I needed God to reveal himself to me, and I asked him to do that. God, if you're there, I need to know you. God, if you're real, would you please show me? And would you please forgive me? And would you please change me into the person that you want me to be? And as a result of that, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is what happened when that change happened. He said this, my heart had been changed, it had been softened, and it had been open to the reality that God existed. I didn't know everything. As I began reading his word and understanding, I saw my need for his forgiveness. And it was a willingness to obey him and to live my life in a way that pleased him that began to characterize who I was. And that inward change then began to affect all the things around him in his life, even his job. He said on his job, he said, my language changed. You know, all the F-bombs stopped and the parts that I would accept in Hollywood changed. 
the things that I was willing and not, was not willing to do on growing pains changed. And my default position is not to be an actor. My default position is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if that means I continue in acting, great. I love that. But if that means I need to change profession some days because I, someday because I can't provide for my family, well, that's what I need to do. I'm sure I've lost a few jobs because I'm a Christian. That's irrelevant. I can honestly say that of everything I have, of everything I've experienced, nothing compares to the joy of knowing Christ because I've seen a glimpse of heaven and it outshines the rest. As you know, Growing Pains ended in 1992, but Kirk would go on to marry his uh, co-star Chelsea Noble and they would go on to have six children where they're raising now uh, in California. And then he became, uh, went on to star in some other movies that were familiar to Christian movies, but he went on to start a ministry to teach people how to share their faith called with, with um, Ray Comfort called The Way of the Master. And he spends his days seeking to engage people for the sake of the gospel. See, the reality is whether we, whether we want to admit it or not, and even though we may not feel comfortable with it, when a person's heart has truly been changed by God, their life will change as well. That's how you know if a heart has been changed, their life will be changed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that there will be evidence in our lives. I, I rejoice in the fact, Lord Jesus, when you told the parable of the sower, you talked about the good seed falling on good soil. And one of the things you said about that, that there were different responses, even in believers, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Not all of us respond exactly in the same way. We don't all produce the same amount of change, but there's always change to some degree in some way. And we pray, Lord, that like Kirk Cameron, as he experienced the truth of the gospel, as he came to faith in Jesus Christ, that affected the roles he was willing to do. He was willing to accept uh, less money and, and give up uh, the wealth and the, the things of this world in order, to, in order to honor you with his life. Lord, whatever decisions we're facing in this life, may we have the same conviction because our hearts have been changed, because we have put our faith in the one who has lived for us, gave his life for us, and who was raised for us so that we might have hope on the day when we face you, that we don't have to fear wrath because of what Christ has done. And because we're hidden in him, we have his righteousness to appeal to. We thank you, Father, for your grace. Transform us into the people you want us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us?